the birth of John the Baptist. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and the relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke blessing And he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace." And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Christmas sermons, you got to love them. They're uh, oftentimes so sentimental, right? You uh, come together and we hear about angels and we hear about uh, the baby Jesus. And it's the one time of the year that you really can't hate Jesus because Jesus is a baby. Can you really hate a baby? I mean, come on. And so pastors get up and they, they just tell you, think about Jesus. Think about his little baby eyes and his little baby cooing. He's just a little baby. He's a baby baby. Think about the farm animals. Weren't they babies too? Look, I have a few. Let's bring them out on stage. I don't, actually. I'm sorry to disappoint you. I don't have any farm animals to bring on stage. But oftentimes we try to use cuteness to win people to the cause of Christ. Uh, Unfortunately, I don't have any sentimentality. Well, maybe a little sentimentality. You know, there's a little bit of sentimentalness in this. If you want sentimentality, I recommend watching a Christmas movie. We do it every Friday night. It's a fantastic tradition, okay? But here I want you to understand the meaning of the incarnation. I don't want you to just know that Jesus was cute. I want you to know why he was in the world. And in fact, maybe he wasn't so cute. Maybe he was one of those ugly babies. Um, I mean... The scriptures say that like, he, there was nothing about his appearance to be made much of. So maybe, you know, some, no parents think that their child is ugly, but, you know, sometimes. Um, <laughs> uh, I want you to understand the point of the incarnation this morning. And the point of the incarnation is this here at church. 
the ultimate and almighty God, the one who created the universe. He loved us so much that he entered his own creation as a man to bear the penalty for our sin and to redeem us from that slavery to sin so that we might live with him forever. This is the point of the incarnation, that the creator himself became a person so that we might have relationship with him. To put it the most succinctly that I can, the incarnation is about the love of God for his people. The incarnation is about the love of God for his people. Over the past couple of weeks, we've been going through some traditional uh, Christmas Advent messages. We've been going through the songs that lead up to Christmas. There's four songs in the book of Luke, and uh, each song has a different name. Traditionally, uh, they've been known as the first uh, words of the Latin version of their name. And so if you're in a Catholic church or in in an Anglican church this morning, you would hear one of these songs being sung in Latin. English is still difficult for me at times, and so no Latin today. But two weeks ago, we looked at Simeon's song, traditionally called the Nunc Dimittis. Uh, that's as good as I can do. Um, last week, we looked at uh, Mary's song, which is called the Magnificat. And then this week, we're looking at Zachariah's song, the Benedictus. And so as we look into that, I think that Zachariah is given an insight into the incarnation before the birth of Jesus even. Jesus isn't born yet. He's given an insight into the incarnation that we can all learn from and be inspired by. We learned a little bit about Zechariah last week. Zechariah is a priest. He works in the temple. Uh, He's older in years. He's an older man. And he's married to a woman named Elizabeth. And Elizabeth has a famous relative named Mary. And we learned last week that after that, um, what, what happened is one night Zachariah was working in the temple, just doing normal temple stuff, lighting some incense, uh, just hanging out. And all of a sudden an angel appeared to him. Now he's an old man. He's been working in the temple since he was a child. He's of the house of uh, Aaron. And so this has been his role for many, many, many years. And an angel had never appeared to him before this time, as far as we know. And the angel tells him, Zechariah, your wife is going to become pregnant. And you're going to have a son, and his name is going to be John. And the, and the son will, verse Luke 1, verses 16 and 17, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, understandably, this was a lot to take in. Zechariah hearing this from an angel that he's going to have a son. And so Zechariah immediately says, how's this possible? I'm old and my wife is advanced in years. Now, Zechariah is a smart man. That's a a lesson that we can all learn right here in the scriptures. uh, He didn't say his wife was old. He said, I'm old. My wife advanced in years. She's she's beyond me. Uh, She's more advanced. Um, And so the angel says, look, 
not really, it doesn't have book in there anywhere, but I just imagine the angel saying, look it. I stand in the presence of God, and who are you to doubt me? You're going to be silent until the child is born. Boom. Mute. Okay? He just hit the mute button. It's like, it's like uh, pardon the interruption. Okay? He just went, mute, you're done until the end of this conversation. And Mary makes a visit to Elizabeth after that. Zachariah still can't talk. Mary stays for three months. And actually, the scripture is a little unclear. It doesn't necessarily say that Mary left before the child was born. It just said that Mary left three months later, which would have been right at Elizabeth's nine-month time. And so maybe Mary was even there for the birth of John. We don't know. Maybe she just left a few days before. It's one of those two. And finally, it's time for Elizabeth to deliver, and that's where we pick up our passage today in Luke chapter 1. Sorry, I didn't turn there before. It comes time to name the child. And everyone assumes that his name's going to be Zachariah, like his dad. This was a pretty well-known custom. And instead, after the child is born, they're getting ready for the naming day, for the circumcision day, naming day. And Elizabeth says, no, his name's John. And they say, what? Why is his name John? No one in your family is named John. And so they look to Zechariah and say, is this what you want? You, you don't want him to be named after you? And Zechariah, you know, he can't talk. So they hand him something to write on. And he just writes, his name is John makes it clear that his name is John. And at that moment, as he writes that out, his speech returns. He's obeyed the angel. He's done what he needs to do. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he begins prophesying. And honestly, I think it's a safe assumption that this prophecy could have been a song, and it most certainly, I'm almost 100% sure, that Zechariah took the little child of John into his arms and he spoke this over him. And so as we consider this, let's think about the fact that this is a father blessing his newborn son. Uh, I'm reminded of the Hamilton song, Dear Theodosia, when uh, he, the Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton are both offering essentially blessings over their newborn children. And it's just, a, it's a, it's a uh, tearjerker. It's a great song. Israel, at this point, has been waiting for a prophet for 400 years. Elizabeth actually beats him to it. She's advanced in every way. She's filled with the Holy Spirit before, before Zechariah is. She prophesied last week um, when we were looking at that passage uh, three months ago. But now Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit. And though Israel has not had a prophet for 400 years, he begins to prophesy. Zechariah has been waiting on a son for his entire life. In this day and age, going childless was not something that families usually chose to do. It was something that uh, they, they usually avoided. They, they did not choose to live without children. And now Zechariah has been waiting to speak for nine months. But God has spoken. Zechariah is prophesying. Now he has a son. And, and the first words that come out of his mouth are, blessed be God. He's praising the Lord. This is where we get the name Benedictus from. Blessed, Benedictus. It's, a, it's the same word in Latin. And he starts praising God. Praises spew forth from his mouth. And before we look at his song, I want to bring up this one point. That the silence prepares us for praise. The silence prepares us for praise. 
Zechariah's been silent himself for quite a while. The Lord's been silent for 400 years. And at this moment, he starts pouring out praise. It prepared him to sing God's praise. Maybe you're in a situation where you feel like the Lord has been silent for far too long. Where it's been years or months, days, whatever it may be, that it's been a long time since you heard from him, since you felt his warm embrace, since you noticed his presence, since you sensed his face shining upon you. Maybe the Lord feels silent to you, and you're just crying out, where are you? Where are you, Lord? Where are you? You're not in a place that is unique to you. The scripture is full of people in this place. And one thing that we learn over and over again is that the silence prepares us for praise. The Lord will come through. And when he does, your heart will be primed for praise. You will either grow cold or you'll continue to long. And Advent is all about not growing cold, but continuing to long. Our hearts long for the coming of our king. We long to see Christ come again, to fill the world with his power and his reign. We long for peace on earth. We long for there to be an end to sin, an end to death, an end to destruction. But yet we're in a period of waiting. But the silence prepares us for praise. Seek the Lord and he will be found, church. As we look at Zechariah's song, I want you to see three things about the incarnation. Three things about the incarnation. I don't always have three points like this, but I, I do this week. You can only fully understand the incarnation when you've been filled with the Holy Spirit. Number two, you can only appreciate the incarnation when you understand the Old Testament. And number three, you can only experience the incarnation when you have the love of God. You can only fully understand the incarnation when you've been filled with the Holy Spirit. You can only appreciate the incarnation when you understand the Old Testament, the historical context in which it came in. And you can only experience the incarnation when you have the love of God. Number one, you can only fully understand the incarnation when you've been filled with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is not born yet. He's still in, in Mother Mary's womb. And Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit and he starts uttering this prophecy about Jesus and about his ministry and what he came to do that's well beyond his own personal understanding. And why is Zechariah able to say these things? It's not just because he's a smart guy, but he's been filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 67 is, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, the rest of the song. He understands the incarnation because he's been filled with the Holy Spirit. And it seems like a really simple point to make this morning, but you cannot understand the message of Christmas. Truly, you cannot understand the message of Christmas without being filled with the Holy Spirit. People all over the globe, they celebrate Christmas. Many people celebrate Christmas they understand the message of Christ. They understand what the incarnation is. They understand that Christians believe that God came to live with his people as a person. But yet, 
have not been filled with the Holy Spirit. We can only understand the good news of Jesus if the Holy Spirit fills us with that. Unless you've been filled with the Holy Spirit, you don't get it. Because that's a work of God. And every time someone understands the gospel, every time someone becomes a Christian, it's not simply because they figured it out. It's a miracle. And I don't think that any of us should avoid that or forget that reality this morning, that anytime anyone comes to Christ, it is a miracle. A lot of you understand that. A lot of you understand that because you live that. It's so easy sometimes, it it is for me as well, I live in a place that's very secular, we all do, uh, where it's easy to lose hope that our friends and our family members and our neighbors could ever believe the message of the gospel. It's easy to lose hope that these people would ever come around to this idea that God himself came and lived on earth and that we're sinners and we need forgiveness and we need his saving. It's easy to lose hope. But friends, don't lose hope. Because it's always a miracle when God saves anyone. It is no less a miracle when one of our own children becomes a Christian than if one of our own neighbors becomes a Christian. You know this because you yourself understand how much of a sinful, selfish messed up person you are. It was a work of the Lord, a miracle that you are here this morning, that you trust in Christ, that I trust in Christ. I know that I'm selfish and I would never do this on my own, but God has filled me with his Holy Spirit. And how did you come to that? Was it simply that you're smarter than other people around you and so you have the better evidence and so you're going to trust? Or is it that you heard the gospel message? Some of you You heard it once and you said, I want this. Some of you, it took you a thousand times hearing the message of Jesus. Over a thousand times. And then one day you said, you know what? I get it. That's true for me. He loves me like that. And I don't deserve it. And he's great. And I'm not. And he's filled me with the Holy Spirit. It's a work of God. It's always a work of God. Every time someone embraces Jesus, That's a miracle. I'm not saying it's easy. Planting a church or uh, sharing your faith in Somerville is a lot like trying to grow a garden in a parking lot. (laughs) It's not an easy thing. Every once in a while you see see a plant come up in a parking lot. But that's like kind of a miracle. They're not very often. The first thing you have to do if you want to plant a garden in a parking lot is rent a jackhammer. And you start getting the concrete out of there. And that's what it, it is when we start talking about our faith. It feels difficult. It's like you're jackhammering away all these presuppositions that people have about what Christianity is. And you're having to defend the faith in a variety of different kinds of ways. You're having to uh, work through all of their objections. And as you work through their objections, you're removing the concrete so that you can get to the fresh soil in there. And as you move the concrete out of the way, you just keep dropping seeds in there. You keep praying for them. And when the seeds begin to grow, that's a work of God. Always a work of God. It's a miracle that the seeds begin to grow. Church, don't lose hope. He can do it. If he did it in your heart, I know how selfish you guys are. (laughs) He can do it in anyone's. He can do it in anyone's.
The more I know myself, the more I'm shocked that I follow Jesus. But yet he is kind. So don't lose hope. Don't give up. And you do have to share your faith because no one, let me tell you this, no one will be filled with the Holy Spirit if you don't share, if you don't share it with them. It just won't happen. Romans 10 verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they've never believed? They have not believed. And how are they to believe in him whom they've not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? We have to be active. Sometimes you got the jackhammering work. Sometimes you've got the planting work. You're always trying to lay the seeds in there as you pull out a piece of concrete, though. You can only truly understand the incarnation when you've been filled with the Holy Spirit. The second thing that I want you to see from Zechariah's song is this. You can only appreciate the incarnation when you know the historical context. Just like Mary, Zechariah is an expert. He, I, I gave this illustration last week that Mary is like a, a jazz pianist. Uh, she's able to step in there and... and Sample from all the greats. You hear in her song last week um, as she realizes that she's, um, that she's carrying the, the Lord. You hear in her song all the, the great hits of old, all the uh, old prophecies. She's bringing them back. And so it's like you hear a, a jazz pianist and they're playing a little Coltrane. They're playing a little Thelonious Monk, all that type of stuff. You, you can recognize it. And here Zechariah is doing the same thing. It's a little less impressive though that Zechariah can do that because he is a priest. Like you would expect a priest to be able to, you know, like know the Old Testament. That's kind of part of his job. But at the same time, it's just full of these Old Testament references. And the reality is, uh, it's tempting for us to just skip over a lot of the Old Testament. It's, law of, it's tempting for us to just say, hey, this stuff isn't important for me. Why do I need to read all of these laws, all these Levitical laws? Why do I need to read all these prophecies that are difficult to understand? But what we find is that you can only truly appreciate the incarnation when you understand the historical context that it falls in. Because I believe this, that the better you know the Old Testament, the more you'll appreciate Christ. And the better you know Christ, the more you'll appreciate the Old Testament. In fact, I don't think that you can truly understand why the Old Testament is the way it is without Christ. Now, you really cannot understand Christ fully without understanding the Old Testament. You kind of need them both. So let's look at a few of these references that he gives us. Verse 68 and verse 69, these are uh, the, the first words of his prophecy. He says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now the horn is a symbol throughout all the Old Testament of strength because horned animals were the strongest animals. And so the horn is strength. So the Lord has raised up a strong leader of salvation for us in the house of David. Now it would be easy to think that he's talking about his own son here. He's not talking about his own son. Zechariah knows what house he's in. He's in the house of Aaron. He's not in the house of David. And so he's prophesying about someone else, not his own son, but he knows that his son will be the forerunner for the house of David leader. And in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, God speaks to David and he says this, and your house and your kingdom shall be sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And who is of the house of David but Jesus himself? Coming from the house of David, raised up, fulfilling the promises of God that David would always have a successor on the throne. Verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old. Now many of the holy prophets from old had predicted that a suffering servant 
would one day come to redeem Israel and deliver them from their sin and suffering. Just look at one with me real quick. You can stick your finger in Luke chapter one and turn with me to Isaiah 53. This is a common passage, but one that is helpful for us as we consider the Old Testament. This was 700 years before Jesus was born. And the prophet Isaiah says this, starting, I'm just gonna read a little bit of it, starting in verse four. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us Oh, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered uh, that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, yet I'm going to, uh, and they, sorry, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The, Lord, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Now, that's not all of that. There's, there's more of that. But if you asked the random person on the street, if you walked up to them and read them that passage, you would say, you think that's in the Old Testament or New Testament, if they understand what Old Testament and New Testament is? Almost everyone would be like, that's obviously New Testament. That's obviously about Christ. It's so apparent. Yet this was 700 years before. So the prophets were prophesying about a suffering servant who would become a righteous king only captured in the person of Christ. It's amazing to see the prophets of old talking about what Jesus came to do. Verse 71, the prophets prophesied of old and saying that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, may, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Now, I could do an entire seminar on all the references that he just dropped. Like, we would be here all afternoon if I tried to go one by one through all of the things that he's saying here. But what he's saying is that Jesus fulfills it all. Everywhere in the Old Testament, Jesus fulfills it all. He is the new coming of all of these references. Zechariah says that God's remembered all of his promises that he's delivering his people from the hands of their enemies, yet it's in a way that no one will expect. I think later on in the book of Luke, you see two of Jesus' followers walking along the trail to Emmaus, and Jesus joins them on this two-hour walk, and they say, and he says, why are you sad? He's already been resurrected, and he says, why are you sad? And they say, because there was this man, and we thought that he was the chosen one. Yet he died, and we don't know what to make of it. And then Jesus went on explaining how he was actually the chosen one, how he is the man, how this Jesus fulfills all the prophecies, and yet he's been resurrected. 
It's not in a way that anyone expects. They expected a geopolitical leader. What they got was someone whose kingdom was not of this world, whose enemies that they defeat are not other nations, but are the enemies of sin and death. This is who Christ is. In verse 76, the prophecy changes. Uh, what happens, basically, he's kind of, Zechariah, you, you might think about it like this. He might be holding the child and speaking to other people through these first several verses, and then what actually happens is he turns and speaks to his child. And he says, but to you, child. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. You will not be called the Most High. You'll be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, which is exactly what we see John do. He lives in the wilderness. He's acting real weird, wearing camel hair and eating locusts. And he's, he's just kind of a weird guy out in the wilderness. He comes out and he says, prepare the way of the Lord. He's coming. And John starts baptizing people. And Jesus is even baptized himself by, the, by, by John, his cousin, as they get older. You will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Let's look at these last couple verses and I want to end with this. I want to end with just kind of the point of the point of the whole passage, the point of the incarnation, which is this. You can only experience the incarnation when you have the love of God. You can only experience the incarnation when you have the love of God. And I just want to emphasize two ways that God's love is countercultural, two ways that God's love is unique, two ways that God's love, not these aren't different things, I'm speaking in succession. Uh, it's just two things, okay? God's love is wrong-absorbing and other-exalting. And this love is unknown outside of God's love. And then we try to reflect it. God's love is wrong-absorbing and other-exalting. It's a beautiful thing about love. This is what love is. As Christians, we've experienced this kind of love, and we try to offer it to others. First, God's love is wrong-absorbing. What do I mean by wrong-absorbing? I mean that he's forgiving. Verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of sins. He's forgiving. To forgive someone is always to absorb a wrong. Let's think about that for just a second. Let's say that we're both sitting in the Market Basket parking lot, okay? Who's been there? A few, few of us. That place is cutthroat, all right? So just get out of the way. I'm trying to pull my car out. You're sitting in your car looking over your grocery list stressed about going in there before Christmas. I back my car out and I back into your car. Oh no. I get out. I walk around. It's busted. Like I broke your tail light. And then you get out of the car and you see it's me. It's your pastor. <laughs> and you're like, pastor, what are you doing? You starting on the eggnog a little early? What's happening here? I'm like, no, no, I just made a mistake. And they're like, and, and so you say, you know what? Don't worry about it. I'll get it fixed. I'm like, you sure? I'll pay you back. Are you sure? Like, can I give you some money? I, I'll make it happen. Do we need to call the insurance? Like, I'm willing to do whatever. No, no, pastor, no, no. I've got it. It's good. And so what happened in that moment? You absorbed the wrong. You said, 
I'm not going to seek revenge. I'm not going to seek repayment. I forgive you. And forgiveness means that now I bear the penalty for your mistake. You backed into me, yet I'm the one paying to have my taillight fixed. That's what forgiveness means. Every time you forgive someone, it means that you bear their mistake. You absorb their wrong, and this is what God does. You see, God can't just wave a magic wand and forgive, but forgiveness requires absorbing the wrong. And so what he did was he sent his own son, who he had been living in eternity with throughout eternity past, into the world to do what? To absorb the wrong. You see, you sin against him, yet he bears the penalty. This is the point of Christ, that he absorbs the wrong on our behalf. This is why he had to hang on the, on the cross. This is why he had to die, because our wrongs deserve death. And so he absorbed all the sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. You see, God's love is wrong-absorbing. In addition to that, God's love is other-exalting. As John grew into a man, he came out of the wilderness, and he started speaking his prophecies, people started wondering, who is this guy? And so they would ask him, John, who are you? Are you the Messiah? And John always answered, no, no. And then he said something kind of cryptic and a little weird. But he always ended up saying, book of John, chapter 3, verse 33, he must become greater, I must become less. He must become greater, I must become less. There comes after me one whose sandals I am unworthy to untie. You see, John understands that his ministry is not about himself, but it's about exalting the other. He voluntarily exalts Jesus because he knows who Jesus is. To love is to be other exalting. And this is baked into who God is from the very beginning. John says, I will become less, he will become greater. God throughout eternity, it's very important that we understand that God has existed as a trinity throughout eternity past. Because without that, we just say that God is self-absorbed. But he's not. He's other exalting constantly. The Father is giving praise to the Son. The Holy Spirit is giving praise to the Son and the Father. The Son is giving praise to the Father. They're always exalting one another. It's in God's nature to be other exalting. Our God has existed not in solitariness of self-love, but he has existed in eternity past and eternity future in a self-giving other exalting kind of love. And this is what Jesus came to do. You see, we might say he must become greater, but Jesus says this about love. He says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And who did that better than Jesus himself? Who gave up his own life for those he calls friend. This is the point of the incarnation. That God entered into humanity, that the infinite became finite, so that he might absorb our debt, and so that he might offer us forgiveness, and so that he might lay himself down so that we can be lifted up. 
so that we can be exalted. He modeled perfect love. Zechariah's prophecy ends with this. Because of the tender mercy of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. We are a people who sit in darkness. But behold, the light has come. In the little town of Bethlehem, a light has come. He's prepared our way. He's absorbed our debt. He's exalted us as friends. We come to him today experiencing his light and having his life everlasting. Church, this is available to you. If you've never received this before, I encourage you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You can just talk to God and say, God, I I want to believe this. I want to believe it's true. I understand that I have debt that needs to be absorbed. Would you absorb that? And for those of us who have been holding on to this truth for a long time, may it be new for us this morning. May it be something that we understand and appreciate and worship him more fully. Each week we participate in a sacred meal together. And it's one of the ways that we remember what Christ has done, that his body was broken for us. That was our debt taken on, broken for us. And his blood was shed for us. And so he gave us this sacred meal and he said, as you break off a piece of the bread, this is my body broken for you. As you receive the cup, this is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so it's a physical reminder of the spiritual reality that we have in Christ. Church, let's stand and prepare our hearts to receive this meal and to to sing his praises. Fathers, we come to your table We pray that we might understand what it means to receive the forgiveness of God, that you have absorbed our debts on our behalf, and that we, in turn, have life everlasting. God, may, may we be people that model that kind of love, that kind of other exalting love. May we absorb the debts of others around us as you have for us. May we exalt others as you have exalted us. May we lay down our lives for our friends and maybe even for our enemies. Christ, as we receive this meal, will you fill us with the Holy Spirit and help us to praise you fully. In Christ's name we pray, amen.